My name is Jason Windsor, and I am one of the student pastors here, and I want to wish everybody a happy holiday weekend. I am uh, assuming that most of you don't have friends with boats. So, and, and I don't either. So uh, let's be together this morning and be jealous of all the people. No, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. No emails. If you need to send any emails, though, I can give you Pastor Adam's email immediately after service. And he would be happy to handle all of those. But uh, we're going to pray it up before we do. I want to give you guys kind of a preview of where we're going. We're going to be coming out of 1 Kings 17. And that'll be primarily where we kind of plow through for you, those of you that follow along. But as is our custom, we're going to pray it up before we dig in. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for being a good God. And we thank you for loving us. And we thank you for giving us your word. But most of all, we thank you for your spirit. Uh, for it's by your spirit we know that we know you, and it's by your spirit that we can literally, with you, transform eternity. We just ask right now that the words that you powered so long ago become alive for us, and as a result, we know you better, and we know ourselves better, and the reason that you've put us here so that we can better serve you. Amen. So we are smack dab in the middle of a sermon series that we call Legendary, and uh, the title self-explanatory. We're going through legendary figures in our family history. And make no mistake, this is a family history. The language of our scriptures is familial language. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. We have an inheritance. This is all family language. And when I say legendary, we all know what we're talking about at that point, because in every field, including our family history, there are legendary figures. If I say basketball, you automatically have four or five names that come right to the top. If I say musicians or bands, you have another four or five, and we debate these, and presidents, politicians, scientists, every field has legendary figures, and our family history is no different, and we recognize them as legendary figures by what they have accomplished, right? This is where the debate comes in. If we say, hey, give me your Mount Rushmore of football quarterbacks, immediately six or seven names come to mind, but you're only allowed to put four on your Mount Rushmore, so what do you do? Your brain immediately kicks in and you start comparing championships or passing stats or, or leadership qualities or you're just unconscionably biased and you put your favorite up there without any thought at all. But that becomes your criterion and that is your legendary figure. And in our family history this morning, we're going to look at arguably the most legendary figure, figure in our family history outside of Jesus Christ. This is a man named Elijah who some 1,000 years after his not death, we'll get to that in a second, Jesus is still mentioning this guy. And he's like the prophet among prophets. There's like prophets, and then there's like Elijah and Moses. And this is who we're gonna talk about this morning. And we're gonna dig in in 1 Kings chapter 17, starting with verse one, where we see, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, that's the king, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So from the very first 20-something words, we see Elijah is exceptional because he's guaranteeing what the weather will look like for the next few years. Now, if you're a meteorologist, you are probably going to be offended by what I say next. But you work in the only profession where nobody ever expects you to be right, and we're all okay with it. Nobody ever, we look it up on our phones, we go, oh, 70% chance of rain, maybe. 
And if you're wrong, we just go, eh. Now, it's not your fault. We have a saying here in Northern Virginia, if you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes. It'll change. And so we don't necessarily expect you to be right. And I only say that to say this. This man just predicted the weather correctly for years. Nobody does that. So from the outset, from the first thing the historian records, we see Elijah is spectacular as he is predicting something that is unpredictable. And it continues. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine. So he says, look, what you've just told the king is really unpopular, so I'm going to get you out of here for a little bit. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kareth Ravine east of Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So in our first four minutes together, we've looked at Elijah's life. He is the greatest weatherman that has ever existed, and he gets fed like he lives in a Disney movie. (laughs) All he does is sit next to this brook, and birds bring him his breakfast and his dinner, bread and meat. We would say right off the bat, we're four minutes in. This is nothing short of legendary, but there is a drought on, a drought that Elijah predicted, and what happens to streams in droughts? They, they cease to exist. So the brook that is supplying him dries up, and the Lord tells Elijah exactly where he wants him to go next. He says, hey, go to this widow in Sidon and go meet with her. And Elijah goes. He, the Lord gave him exact directions. He goes there. He meets with this widow, and he asks for some food. And there's a drought on. So as you know, when, when there's drought, there's famine. And this is her response when Elijah asks her for food. As surely as the Lord God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a little oil of oil, olive oil in my jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. That's a really fancy, morbid way of saying no. Like, hey, I don't have enough to feed you. In fact, I'm out here gathering enough sticks to make fire so my son and I can eat our final meal and then starve to death together. And Elijah's thinking, man, if you'd have just said no, that would have been much better. But this is the situation that she finds herself in. She doesn't have enough to feed her her own family, much less Elijah. So this is what Elijah says. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me and what you have, and bring it to me. Then make something for your son, for this is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day that the Lord sends rain on the land. He says, don't worry about it. You go make me a little bread, and then your flour and your oil, you won't have to worry about it through this whole drought. And so she does what the prophet asks, And the Lord does exactly what he said he would. Throughout the entirety of the drought and famine, they didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. The oil was always there. The flour was always there. But that wasn't the end of their troubles. About midway through this thing, her son gets ill, and he dies, and she is livid. She goes to Elijah and says, this is what your God is like? He saves us from starvation just to allow me to watch my son die of illness? And Elijah says, no, 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 that's not how my God works. 
May I have your son? She gives the son, he goes out, he prays, and Elijah watches God revive her son from the dead. And the widow's response is, now I know that the Lord God of Israel is the one true God. So I just want to recap. We've been going about nine minutes now. He's predicted the weather. He's fed by ravens. He has a never-ending food supply. And through him, God calls people back to life. And we have not even gotten to what he is most known for. About three years after he arrives, the Lord says, go back to Israel. And so Elijah listens. He goes back to Israel, and he announces that he's back, and he says to one, another prophet, he says, go and tell Ahab, the king, that I'm here. And so he does. And Ahab comes, and Ahab is furious. As you can imagine, being in a famine is not fun. And when you're the chief politician, how happy are people with you when they can't eat? Not very. So you have to imagine Ahab is not very popular here, and he is blaming Elijah. He's like, you are the troublemaker of Israel. You have brought this on us. And this is how Elijah replies. I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands, and you have followed the bills. He says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not blaming your nonsense on me. I did not do this. You did this. When you chose to exalt Baal, the God of fertility and rain, God said, oh yeah? You want to worship the God of rain? Well, guess what's not happening? Rain. This way you will know and you will listen, but I guess it's only been three years, Ahab, and you're a little slow to learn, so we're gonna speed this process up. I want you to gather all of these people and here's what he tells Ahab. Summon all the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He says, give me all the people that serve your false gods. I want them all. Bring them all to Mount Carmel because we're about to have a contest. We're gonna end this drought. We're gonna see who's Lord of all once and for all. So Ahab went throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel and Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. So he's gathered all Israel, he's gathered all the false prophets, and he says, how long are you gonna straddle the fence? How long are you gonna waver between this God and this God? And scripture says, but the people said nothing. And we should be able to relate to that. Because we also wanna back the winner. And there's only one way to know if you're backing the winner or not. You have to wait till the result is in and watch who wins. They don't want to get on Elijah's side and have Ahab win because then they're all dead. They don't want to get on Elijah's side or Ahab's side and have Elijah win because then they're all in trouble with the God of Israel. So what do they do? They do what every kid does in every algebra class when the teacher says, what does X equal? That's the quickest way to get a room silent. There's two ways. Ask them the answer to an algebraic question or ask them to pray. <laughs> Every room will go silent and no one will make eye contact with you. Because they're afraid if they make eye contact with you, bam, I got you. You're going to have to answer this question. So the people, they want to know who the winner is before they throw their support behind it. 
So Elijah speaks for and to the people. So Elijah says to them, to the silent people, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. One of the reasons I love Elijah is he's a little sarcastic. He's got a little bit of a tood. He says, okay, so we're going to go 450 to 1. You take your 450, and I'll just take me and the Lord. He says, and I'll let, even let you choose the animal. And I'll even let you go first. And we'll see what happens, because the winner of this contest is the one whose God answers them. And not just answers them, answers them with fire from heaven. This is an impossible thing to lie about. This is not one of those magic tricks where you can do math to pull out the right card. Fire from heaven. Let's leave no doubt about this result. And the people like this. The people say, what you say is good. You know why the people like that? Because he's no longer asking them to back someone before they know the outcome of the contest. They're like, okay, good. Elijah just got us off the hook. We no longer have to say anything until the contest is decided. So the prophets of Baal build their altar, they take their bull, they prepare it, and about nine in the clock in the morning, they start pleading with their God. And the historian tells us that they start chanting, and they start dancing, and they start calling out, and nine becomes 10, and 10 becomes 11, and 11 becomes 12, and they're getting more desperate, and they're getting more frantic, and Elijah is just being Elijah. He says, hey, maybe your God's sleeping and you should call out louder. Maybe your God's really, really, really busy. Maybe your God's in the restroom. And he's just hammering him and hammering him. And if you've ever tried to do something that's not working for three hours, and you have some guy over there just going, hey, what's the problem? Hey, there might be another way you could do that. Or hey, maybe your God is just weak and you're foolish. You can imagine they are not happy, so they start cutting themselves. And they start trying to get their God's attention. And finally, when the evening sacrifice comes, they give up because their God has not answered them. And now it's Elijah's turn. And he turns to the people and he says, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed, so about 24 pounds of seed. He digs a trench around this altar, and then he arranges the wood, cuts the bull into pieces, lays it on the wood, and says to the people, fill four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood, and do it again. And they did it again. And do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time, and the water ran down the altar until it filled the trench. Now, the vast majority of you that have been camping know you don't take your kindling from the bottom of a river. 
If you do, it's going to be a long evening because that stuff won't light. Elijah again is being Elijah, saying, okay, 450 to 1, you go first, and I'm going to saturate my sacrifice with water. So you cut yourself, you call out, you do all the things to get your God's attention. I'm going to actually make it harder for my God. So when this works out, your mouths are shut. You have nothing to say. But Elijah never seems to run out of words. So this is what he says. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's saying, Lord, our God, the God of our family. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and burned up all the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They are no longer silent. They now know who the winner is, and falling on the ground and crying out is the appropriate response when you watch everything in front of you burn up when a man offers a prayer. This is nothing short of legendary. This is epic. And this is what Elijah is best known for. But his ending to his life is just as epic. So he goes throughout. He lives the rest of his life. He pulls a man named Elisha, and he begins to train him. And near the end, both Elisha and Elijah know that Elijah's time on this earth is coming to an end. Elijah says, hey, I've got to go to meet God. And you stay here. And Elisha says, no, I follow you to the end of your life. And he says, okay, come on, let's go. So they walk. They do a couple more miracles on the way because that's just how these guys roll. And he gets to the end, and they know that the end is coming. And this is how Elijah leaves this earth. As they were walking along together, Elisha and Elijah... Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses appear and separate the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. That's insane. This man's life is insane. He saw barely describable acts of God on the regular. And we look at that. And we go, what do I do with that? Because my life doesn't look like that. And so we start, which is our custom, and which is our natural progression, we start to make a scale, because that's what we do. Just like with scientists and musicians and basketball players, we make a scale. Because Elijah could only do these things if he was more powerful than me. Or if he was closer to God than me. Or if he was more favored by God than me. Because my life does not look like that. So we create a scale, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, that looks something like this. Up at the top, closer to God, we have Elijah and Moses. Because they did insanity. 
Then behind them, we have the other prophets that spoke for God and did things like Isaiah that met angels and had coals put to his lips and prophesied at the Messiah. And we put these guys up there in our family history because they spoke for God. Like they called their shot some thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. They spoke about who he was. So they have to be really close with God and they have to be really tight with God. But once we get out of the legendary figures in our family history, we start moving around the people that we see and just below prophets, I would assume, are, pastor, are missionaries that leave the country. Because missionaries that leave the country have to be closer to God. I realize I just offended all the missionaries that don't leave the country. I'm okay with that. You chose to stay here and have air conditioning. They're living in huts. So missionaries that leave the country just below minor prophets, just below Elijah and Moses. Then we get to the real heroes, the real MVPs, pastors that wear suits, you know those guys are closer to God than those of us that wear sneakers when we preach. This is the way this works in our minds. And below that, we get people that volunteer a lot because that's good. If you're volunteering, you're serving the least of these. Food pantries, mission trips, you name it. Cutting neighbor's grass, these people are good. Not as good as the pastors that wear suits. Definitely not as good as Elijah, but still good and the people that pray are underneath the people that serve, because while praying and talking to God is good, it's not as good as feeding people that are hungry, because you're just praying for the food when you have a fully stocked fridge. You could take them food like the people above you. And then below them, we get people to come to church, and then below them, we get everybody else, because it gets exhausting to make categories with more than eight or nine people. So the, the bottom of the pyramid is just everybody else. And... Your scale might not look like that, but you have a scale. You have a scale of people that are closer to God or more obedient to God or mean more to God or have a more exciting existence as a result of being called by God. And this is very rational. We look at Elijah's life and it doesn't look like ours and we can make those kind of assumptions. And this works in every other aspect of our existence. It makes sense that if you get better grades, you're higher on the scale. It makes sense if you scored more points in a basketball game, you're higher on the scale. The problem is that when we apply it to our family history, though it makes sense in every other avenue of existence, this is grossly unbiblical thinking. This is not how our family history works. And it is repeatedly discussed in scripture and repeatedly shown that this is not how our family functions. There is no sliding scale. The apostle Peter takes direct aim at this in one of his letters when in chapter two, verse nine, he said, but you are a chosen people. Those of us that believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The people that he's writing to knew about religious division. There were priests who worked in the temple and administered the sacrifices and got close to the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God was. And then there was everybody else who was not allowed to do that. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. That division doesn't exist anymore. There's no special caste or special group of people that serve the Lord anymore and get to be in his presence. You are the priesthood. Yeah. By the result of receiving the Spirit, 
that used to be segregated by a curtain, there is no more division. You are the priests, and each one of us, no longer is it the prophet who goes out and declares the excellencies of God. It is all the church that has received the Spirit that declares the, and he's only echoing the teacher, teachings of his master. He's only teaching us what Jesus taught us. At a point in his ministry, uh, Jesus gathered a lot of his followers, and he says, you guys are going to go out. You guys are going to go out into different towns, and you're going to do crazy things. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to call demons out of people. You're going to perform miracles, and people are going to marvel at the things that you do. And he talks about them, but he also talks about those that would take them in. And he says this, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. You and I have the same reward as Elijah. Because reward is not measured by the spectacularosity of the event. The reward is simply obeying the call. And in this case, raining fire is just as good as giving water because that's what God asks of you. There can only be one Elijah. Because if everybody walked around raining fire, we'd have seen it a million times and it would no longer be spectacular. We all labor under the misconception that our God needs spectacular events to make his presence known. That's just a worldly way of thinking. Our God can make himself known any way he pleases. This is what I want us to take from Elijah's life this morning. Not the battle with the prophets, not the fiery chariot, but something that happened in the middle when he was very depressed and sad. See, because after the fiery battle, he expected Israel to just be like, oh yes, we follow Yahweh. We have returned our hearts to our Savior, and it didn't work out that way. So he was upset, and he was miserable, and he was a little mad at God, and he even asked to die. And this is what God said to him. He says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave because the Lord was in the whisper. in comparison to the epic feats that comprised Elijah's existence, our lives and what we've been asked to do can feel like a whisper. But God is in the whisper. God rewards what is done in secret. And he rewards what is done at his request. Elijah doesn't get a bigger mansion or more favor from God because he's Elijah. 
gets the reward of obedience. And so do we. Because whoever receives a prophet in a prophet's name receives a prophet's reward. Whoever gives the water that God has asked them to give receives the prophet's reward. There is no sliding scale. We get it all twisted up because we actually think Elijah did those things. We think Elijah made the jars not run dry, and we think Elijah called that boy to life, and we think Elijah made the fire from heaven, knowing full well that he is not capable of doing any of those things. The same Lord that guides his steps is the same Savior that guides ours. And the cup of water affects eternity in the same way the fire does because the same God is Lord over all. And what he asks us to do is the calling he's put on our lives so that we can partner with him in changing eternity. And God is in our whisper. And so let us not aspire to the spectacular show to think that we need it. We see it on, on pictures. We see it that if the music is loud and the hands are raised and seven million people come forward and, and there's this big show, oh, God is there, but if six people show up and just pray, oh, God is not there. That is an unbiblical lie because the Lord of one is the Lord of all. And he has called us simply to rely on his plan through the power of his strength, through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. So let us not aspire to be legendary. Let us simply aspire to be grateful and obedient. Because what he calls us to is out of our control. But whether or not we tune our ear to him and follow, that is completely and absolutely within our control. What the result of that is, completely out of our control. But whether or not we follow him, as was his original request to the disciples, completely and absolutely in our control. So as we go our separate ways this week, let us not make this the sum of our worship. On Monday morning at 6 and Tuesday night at 8 and Wednesday at 4.30, let us still aspire to the call that God has given us. And let us not be ashamed of that call or disappointed in that call when there's no audience for whatever he's called us to do. But let us just be faithful to the one who died for us and has called us to be with him for eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us and we thank you for your faithfulness when we are faithless. We ask right now that we just trust you. That we just trust you with our calling. That we trust you with the result. That we don't aspire to climb a scale that doesn't exist, but we just aspire to know you better. And as a result of knowing you better, we partner with you in affecting eternity. And that we grow more to love you. And as we grow more to love you, we're able to suffer better. And as we suffer better, more people come to know you. And that we simply, as a result of believing that you are who you say you are and receiving your spirit, hear your voice and follow you. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen.